0: Every so often, a comic comes along with an elevator pitch so pure and simple that you wonder why it's never been done before. Even if that original concept, that initial spark of genius, starts off as a joke, the sincerity of the creator's approach to that pitch elevates the entire project. Sometimes internal logic is applied so well that you go from thinking that it's something that could exist to something that wholly should exist. When it's a joke that's taken entirely seriously, when you have a pure idea done well, and when you have a dash of meta-commentary thrown in for good measure, then you have the recipe for something memorable. My name is Matt Loon, and today on the show I'm joined by Steve Morris and John Allison to discuss two comic series that share something in common. They both take simple concepts and elevate them with humour and sincerity. This Is That's The
1: Issue? Uh, I'm John Allison. I'm the writer of Giant Days and the writer of By Night, both from Boom Studios. I write and draw Bad Machinery from Oni Press. And I've done a lot of web comics, which you can read at scarygoround.com.
2: I'm Steve Morris. I'm the writing editor for the MNT, which is a comics website. I also edit Shelf Dust, which is a different comics website. I'm 80% of the market, I think, at the moment. Um, I've written previously for Comics Alliance, CBR The Beat, other websites like that. Right. Um two eyes and a snub so far, looking forward to the next one.
0: <laughs> oh no! Yeah, well, there is uh there's quite a lot of uh, of Eisners going around this table because you've been nominated for a couple, haven't you, John? Not to not to be rubbing it in, Steve, but um but yeah.
1: Oh, well, yeah, no, I don't like think in terms of uh, you know I consider every failure a failure, so every time I lose, I simply wipe it from my memory. You know, once <laughs> I, you know, just cried, cried because yeah. you, know, you get up first thing in the morning if you've not been in San Diego and you have a look, you know, are all my pals congratulating no. me on Twitter? No. <laughs> Never. So I means I've lost. And the color yeah. you know, you have that kind of glow about you until you lose and then you're just a loser. So you have four times. I think China Days has been nominated three times and um, Bad Machinery mm. once.
0: Yeah, yeah. And Steve, you've the the Eisners have still not have you still yet to find the brilliance within Steve Morris, but it's only a marathon, I think.
2: Uh, act- actively snubbed, I think, is the phrase I would use um, at <laughs>
0: They don't announce it like that on the day, though, do they? They go, and the winner is, but also actively snubbed. Like an honourable mention, but much, much worse.
2: Yeah, well, you have to read the uh, the issue of the uh, Entertainment Weekly that comes out beforehand, and that kind of announces all the, all the comics that have been awarded, and all the comics that are going to be snubbed this week. So you can kind of track yeah. them uh... all <laughs> there.
0: Like the thumbs up and the thumbs down. Mm, yeah. 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 Um, so, John, we'll start with you. Uh, you have got a milestone issue coming up. Um, as this podcast comes out, Giant Days number fifty will be out uh, tomorrow, I think, um, if my maths is right. Um, but um, a giant milestone issue fifty. Um, did you did you expect to get this far? Have you got many plans for the big occasion? Is there going to be a party that I've I've not yet had the invite to?
1: Matt, I don't like parties. I don't like (laughs) making a (laughs) fuss of me. I don't like making a fuss generally, and I don't like having to stay up past about 10.30 at night. So there will be no party. The party will be a warm handshake from my girlfriend on the morning of release, followed by the complete, you know, maybe she'll read it and have a little smile. That's always quite nice. She quite enjoys reading it. But that's all the congratulation I need. Yeah, that's all that's all the affirmation I need was that it was another good issue. Well done, John. Pat on the back <laughs> in the box with all my other comps, and never think about it again. Um, yeah. No, no, I'm really excited. It's it's a big day. It's really exciting. It shows a lot of faith from the publisher to have got to issue 50, especially in this day and age when people seem to be allergic to numbers higher than about four, or maybe mm. higher than two. I'm I'm not sure really. It just feels like being allowed to get to number 50 uh, means that you've got somewhere, in, which is funny in an industry where things have reached like a thousand issues. But, you know, it, no, it feels great. It's really exciting. And the issue that we've done is a little bit different to some of the other issues. It's a sports manga. <laughs>
0: so oh, is. I saw that. Yeah, it is with uh, with cricket, isn't it? Because uh, yeah. McGraw's team goes, uh, goes downhill. And so they've all got to step up.
1: That's right. Yeah, and I'm I'm very pleased with like Max, Saren gets better every issue, and this issue is a is a real tour de force for them. I mean, it's it's brilliant. So, yeah, very exciting. You know, I write the words for three mornings, then there's a month where someone very special polishes it into a high shine. And yeah, this one's a really good one.
0: I was I was going to ask about Max actually because they've got such a such a, a, an amazing style when it comes to, especially when it comes to comedic timing and kind of slapstick humour. Uh, have you found your writing adapt and evolve over time to, you know, to kind of, to to you know, your approach has changed when it comes to like envisioning what Max is going to be drawing and how their style is going to be incorporating your words?
1: Well, it's sort of the law of unintended consequences, really. I mean, I think Max is so good an artist that, and this will sound quite paranoid, I always think one day... Uh there'll be the nod from, you know, a big company saying, you know, here's a massive pile of cash and and we would lose Max. So I always tried to write things that they would find exciting to work on. You yeah. Know? Uh you know, like and, and I just meant that I wrote more physical things because I know I I'm from a basically a comic strips background, which means there's a lot of standing around in those comics. And so I had to just think more dynamically. When I was writing, which has led to Slapstick, because it's a comedy book essentially, but also more sort of dramatic sequences, a lot of you know anything that would punch some dynamism into the art that would give Max a challenge. I tried to do,
0: hmm. yeah, and there and there's there's a perfect balance, I think as well. Like, I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of Giant Days, and I know you are as well, Steve. Um, and there's there's such a, a perfect balance, I think, between comedy and and drama and and you know these kind of heartfelt emotions that you you know you see portrayed in Max's art as well. But uh, you know, but the the scripting and the, the their own voices have kind of taken on really taken on lives of their own, which you know as they should after you know I'd say fifty issues, but you've been you've been writing them and especially Esther for a lot longer than that. Um, have you found that they're the characters of you know I, I know. A lot, of, a lot of writers say, oh, well, the characters write themselves these days, which, you know, not being a writer, I don't know how true that is, but, um, but you know, do you find that they're getting easier to kind of, um, you know, interpret how they would act and react to certain things now that you've got kind of 50 issues in the bank?
1: I think, well, I think it's it's not quite as cut and dry than that. I Whenever I start a new series, it's really hard when you do the first issue because you don't sort of have the characters' voices in your head. But once you... It, sometimes it can only take two or three issues for me to really start hearing their voices. So mm-hmm. after fifty issues, yeah, obviously it's easier than it was on issue one. But I'm not sure it's so much easier than it was on issue twenty-seven. If that makes sense, you know. Like yeah. It, there's there's not there's a law of diminishing returns. You just gain a certain comfort with the characters. But with Giant Days, like often with characters, for them to have made it into a series, I kind of already knew them. You know, they they took shape because I spend a lot of time workshopping characters, drawing them myself. Before I actually start writing the first script, just to actually get a feel for who they are, because if I haven't drawn something, as someone who was a writer artist and still is, if if I'm not drawing it, I don't have a, the same feel for it. The physicality often comes out of the drawing. So if I do a lot of drawing beforehand, I know the characters better. So it's it's a combination of approaches.
0: Hmm. You drew um, issue forty eight as well, didn't you? Which was. Mm-hmm. Um, just a, a month or so ago. How did that feel kind of getting back into it because I know you you keep your hand in with the drawing of it you, you know you you pop up every so often as as the artist on it. You? you did the the winter special as well in December mm-hmm. wasn't it as well. Um how does that kind of do you approach the issue differently as you say like you know obviously you get a better feel for the for the physicality of the characters when you draw on it.
1: Well I've learned a lot from working with Lisa and Max. In fact I've been working very hard to become a better artist. Um i didn't i sort of felt i'd reached a plateau in my work a few years ago which is when i started to dial back how much i was producing but i've not actually been drawing less i've been working really hard to improve as a, like a comic book artist so mm-hmm. the uh, the holiday special and then the issue i did with max and then i penciled half the next issue because she'd hurt her wrist um it's you know it's it's difficult for me to put in, i say it's, it's part of a process that's been going on for 20 years i never want to stop drawing and when i do giant days, sometimes the most important thing is to remember to draw like myself, not mm. like Max. Which means that sometimes people will say, well, the characters don't look right now, because Max has done so many issues, but they're still my character models, and I'm not going to start drawing them like Max draws them, which is obviously a variation on my original model. I, I still default back to how I draw them because in my head that's what they look like. And when yeah. I occasionally I rough the issues out, if it's a particularly visual issue, I'll I'll sort of storyboard it as I write it. Just so that I don't write a script that isn't drawable, if that makes sense, because I'm quite mm-hmm. capable of doing that. Setting up panels where which don't work when I'm writing it, just typing it out. So, and when I draw those, I'm still drawing the characters like I drew them in the in the first issue. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a, again, it's a, it's sort of a hybrid approach. I've learned a lot about dynamism from the artists that I've worked with, but in the end, the characters still look like I drew them.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And there's no, you know, the, the characters are still the characters, you know, they've still, you know, they, they have got lives of their own, they have got their own kind of characteristics, the way they hold themselves, the way they, the way they walk, and obviously the way they talk. And I think that's, that's evident in, you know, in the artists, you know, even in the different artists that have come through the book, because you have had guest artists coming on as well as the, as you yeah. go through. And there's, uh, I think it's a, it's a testament to you, to your, Uh, scripting and the fact that the characters are so strong now um, that, you know, no matter who draws them, they always have that, you know, idea that of of who each, you know, who Esther is and who Daisy is and and as you go through it, you know.
1: Well, we're very careful about who draws the comic. Like, there are some amazing artists who, you know, like could do like a real tour de force, but I don't know that they draw the characters anything like I picture them in my head. So... It sounds it sounds sniffy, but it's not sniffy. It's just like horses for courses, if you know what I mean. We were mm. very careful with the people. Every, everybody who's filled in on the comic has been very carefully selected to sort of fit with the way I write because I wouldn't would feel sick if I gave it to somebody who was a good artist but couldn't interpret the way I write a script. You know, They yeah. have to all be able to like lower themselves down to my level as an artist and then sort of rebuild from up there. and and some people I would never ask to do that (laughs) (laughs) and
0: so you've got 50 issues what um I'm envisioning, like, I'm asking this question in the in the spirit of that Simpsons episode where they give a glimpse of the future and it's, mm. you know, more and more ridiculous themes, you know. So what are we expecting from the next 50 issues? Uh, so mm. I'm, I'm thinking there's, like, time travel, there's going to be kind of, you know, surprise alien pregnancies, things like I think that. I you're
1: talking about the, the third series of Gilligan's Island, so uh, dream sequences and guest stars. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, the next 50 issues will provide you with negative 45 issues, because I think issue 55 is the last issue, so... Really? Right, okay. Yeah, that's it. That is when Esther and Daisy will graduate, and at that point, giant days will, will cease.
0: How do you feel about that? You know, you've been developing it for years now you know how do you feel about bringing it to a close is it the right time for you is it the right time for the it sounds like it's the right time for the characters as well
1: it is and i and i decided that i wanted to end it i said that i want that was what i wanted to be the final issue i didn't want to take it past um take it past the end of sort of undergraduate studies partly because you will enter gilligan's island series three at some point and you will enter that sort of dream sequence and ever ever diminishing returns I don't really want to go there. I want to try other things. But I also know it's going to be very hard for me to do anything that t- tops giant days because it's people have responded to it more strongly than anything else that I've done and seem yeah. to get so much more out of it. So it's bittersweet for that reason because I don't know that I can create something that will have that connection with people again because it's quite a personal work and I've sort of plumbed, you know mined my life, really. But on the other mm-hmm. hand, I also think you have to know when to get out.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we're not going to be expecting like a, an all-new, all-different Giant Days rebirth, number one, anytime soon. Uh, Just, you yeah. know, they're all, they're all younger, they're hipper. Uh,
1: well, uh, you know, I could, you know, go back to university for another three years, have some relevant experiences, and then <laughs> mine yeah. those. But I think it to be a very strange comic based on a 42-year-old man going back to university. Um, it's going to be quite jarring for me as well and expensive. So <laughs> <Yeah>. I would not have an odd
0: <laughs> it's yeah. It's probably not the smartest move to go, is it really?
1: Well, I'll be smart because I'll have another degree. I mean, I'll be really clever, but I don't think it's a you know very wise move in terms of actually like you know, continuing my life. I think my life might fall apart while I'm studying <laughs> American like, history.
0: Yeah. Um well, there's an interesting segue to you, Steve, because um, Shelfdust does uh, annotated Giant Days, which uh, I think you started writing, and then you've handed off to Claire Napier now.
2: Yeah, that's is right. That right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so this is a little awkward, uh, but yeah, um, <laughs> we've um, we've been doing the annotated shelf dust for about sixteen issues now, um, including the um, uh, the three original comics that um, John did um, by himself and published as mini comics, uh, which we got at Fortball about ten years ago. Now I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea of that was simply. Um, um, there's so much going on in Giant Days and I was talking to an American friend about it and they didn't quite understand some of the references and a lot of stuff that I thought was, you know, a brilliant joke, they they would go, This is a brilliant joke for this reason and I'd say, Oh, there's there's two reasons. Do you know this as well? And then I'd find myself explaining the you know, the the intricacies of like um X T C or 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 like uh, this is a quote from a musical or this is a thing from Blue Peter or that sort of thing there's a, there's a very strong british streak that runs through giant days and i thought well you know the americans what they love is being patronized by british people who, who you know over explain everything to them so i thought let's give them some of that and then-
0: <laughs> just <laughs> dive into that yeah it's it's great i mean that's that's a good point really because it is there is something so you know it is so inherently british not just in the setting and the characters but in the dialect and the humor as well um you know have you noticed much um much pushback from that john like with with kind of an american audience because it feels like it has been embraced um you know by american audiences even if they kind of get it on perhaps a different level
1: no i haven't noticed any pushback at all in fact well it's been translated i think into seven or eight languages now and it's and it's done well, particularly well. You can tell how well it's doing by how many of the books have come out in that country. And like in Poland, I think they're up to book six already. And, and there are currently nine on the shelves here. And they started a lot later. Mm. In France, it's done well. In Spain, it's done very well. So I think actually it's quite universal what's in it, really. And the fact that I pepper it with just, you know, the kind of nonsense that comes out of my mouth, <laughs> I've never really had a problem when I, I mean, it's only the sort of things I'd say. And yeah. I find that I can make myself understood when I'm in America. I mean, you know, you do it occasionally, you have to change the odd word. But, yeah, you know, but... people, and but most of the references in it, although they seem oblique, actually are probably less oblique to an American because I like American culture and have done since I was, you know, a child. So a lot of the things in it aren't actually that British. I mean, so, you know, obviously, things that they do are always British. Yeah. But, you know, like I'm not going to use the word spackle instead of polyfiller right but but at the same time which is a great example (laughs) but at the same time I I, you know I'm giving the script to an American editor and I very rarely have to annotate something and say this is how things are in Britain get used to it you know it's like no I I do try and write universally and and I, I don't actually think it's as I don't actually think it's as heavy with weird British references perhaps as as you know like I read the annotations and I read them with great amusement because sometimes I think you've really tied yourself in a knot here looking for something that actually wasn't in
2: there at all. It really gives me a chuckle. Oh, yeah, it's it's absolutely. It's based on the annotations that um, Comic Science used to do of Grant Morrison comics, where you'd read people (laughs) saying, and obviously this is a a grand treaty on on the idea of what Americans were were all mind-controlled with the drinking, the water, was uh, the sort of weird conspiracies that come up. So um, I thought, well, let's build a few conspiracies around giant days and these free buildings. Oh, yeah, no,
1: I love that. But I write it so fast that often, you know, it's not, I've not been thinking about things that hard, you know. It's literally what was on the absolute, like, the surface, like just skimming the surface of my very shallow mind. There's not. I'm not there constructing grand theories at all. It's, it's quite the opposite sometimes. It's very much just what I was thinking that morning
0: it might be like that um that psychological thing where you you know the, you say the first thing that comes to your mind that even though it's kind of you don't think it means anything obviously you know the psychologists go oh issues with their father i see and that's that might be
1: analysis but you know i just do it through a comic you
0: know, so <laughs> like, exactly. all <laughs> Yeah, weeping as you write about esther you know <laughs> and, like dancing down the road yeah <laughs> Um, but Steve, you've, um, you've got MNT, which is going from, from strength to strength now. You know, it started off as a newsletter and, you know, it's now developed into, you know, you're, you're focusing on producing more articles for the website and, and expanding that into kind of the comics landscape, the, the journalism landscape. You know, how did that first come about for you? How, why did you start first, um, you know, first thinking of I'm going to produce a newsletter?
2: Uh, That came from Megan Purdy and from Christian Hoffer, who were the other two um, editors who who started up the uh, newsletter at the time. And we have quite pragmatic mindsets. So we thought what we'd like to do is produce something where there's tangible um, cost and reward to it. So uh, we, we built the whole thing through a Patreon. And the idea was we'll produce this thing for you. And the more money it raises, the more things will be in it. So just very transparent, very simple. So um, when we first raised, I think, the first $50 through the Patreon, they like, right, we'll have a guest feature. When we get to $100, right, that's two guest features. If we get to 125 there's two guest features and a review or an interview. And we built it up through there. Uh, we just wanted to do something which felt a bit more direct and, and, and simple for people. So one thing we find is that with comics websites now, they've been overshadowed by Twitter and Facebook. Um, If you write an article of 500 words about something, most people will read the headline and that will be about it. They won't see the rest of it. So the best way to get news or features or essays read is to deliver it directly to people so it's all in one place. Rather than saying at, at San Diego, you know, oh, there's a new series by this person and one by this person and one by this person. People just boil it down to the headlines. If you... Write a full report and, and email it to someone. You're basically saying, Here is everything that happened in one place, and here's how it all affects one another. So it builds up a more, um, a wider range of of news, which all informs each other, and it builds up a more, sort of, a, more like a network, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So we want to have that direct line to people to say, The comics industry isn't a series of snapshots of headlines, the comics industry is this weird, amorphous blob of news and culture and and people and here's how they're all bouncing off each other at the moment. And uh, by doing it as a newsletter we could say once a month, here's what's happened, here you go, take it away from you, you know, there it is in one place. Nothing gets lost that way, it all gets seen and it all gets to be read as a more uh, developed version of the news that you'd otherwise just click past on Twitter.
0: Yeah, I mean, I found it especially liberating when I first started, uh, when first subscribed, because you do feel, especially, you know, as someone like myself who kind of, uh, you know, who has written reviews regularly and and works on, you know, a few websites that are always like kind of on the the button when it comes to, you know, news and latest spoilers on this and then, you know, what's Wolverine up to this week and things. Um, But um, I found it quite liberating to be able to step away from that kind of constant merry-go-round and still be able to keep up with the news and still you know kind of once a month sit down and actually read it as a chunk I found it um you know refreshing to be able to kind of do that and I felt I felt like you know I of like my granddad reading a broadsheet you know just kind of sit there and just you know have a drink and just sit and absorb the news in one go as opposed to having it constantly push notifications up on your phone and flashing and stuff it is it is kind of refreshingly different to be able to do that
2: that's how Heidi McDonald pitched it to us when she was talking about it because I, I talked to her about what to do with it and she said this idea of you know, it's it's almost like a broadsheet or a tabloid, if you want to take it that way Which you take away of yourself you, you have a donut, you have a bit of coffee you sit away from the computer almost and, and this is just a chunk that you can read in one go so rather than having different tabs up or videos playing or something else distracting you so you're half reading everything this is all living in one place one big thing that you can just read, you know, just on a uh, on a Sunday morning when it's cold outside, have a quick read of that, and then you're pretty much primed on what's happened in comics for the month.
0: Yeah, and and so you've you've evolved that idea into uh, a comics website, the Comics MNT, which is uh, which is is more of the same, really. And and you've got an opportunity to go, dive into, you know, have a deeper dive into into comics and comic criticism and interviews. Um, when MNT first came out, I feel like the, the comics landscape was kind of shifting. Uh, the comics journalism landscape, anyway, was kind of shifting from, you know, because uh, shortly before that, Comics Alliance shut down. And then, um, you know, sites like CBR and comicbook.com have, have, ten- have drifted their focus away to, you know, to more headline grabbing, um, you know, much wider geek pop culture rather than any kind of deeper comics criticism.
2: There's a lot, there's a lot more dank memes than there used to be.
0: Yeah yeah which is a phrase i never i never heard of uh, until until this started happening. Um and do you feel like MNT, and and also shelf dust to an, to an extent is a is a reaction to that or do you feel as though this is just you know this is just a continuation of something that is you know has long been there you know like on on other websites like comics
2: journal and things like that. I think it was for Christian i think um for myself it was more just a venue that I could write what I wanted to write. Um, uh, when you're writing, it's, it's almost it's weird that this work for hire sort of idea, when you're writing for a CBR or a Comics Alliance or somewhere like that, you're kind of writing to a, uh, a brief that they have given you. So if you say to them, oh, I'd really like to cover some UK small press comics, they will go, oh, that's interesting. No, but interesting. I <laughs> don't get to do anything. So with the M&T, for me, it was just a case that I could go, right, I'm actually my own boss now. I can write what I want to write. And I actually think the UK comics industry is more interesting than the American comics industry. So I'm going to write about the people in there and what they're doing and the new books they're making, how they're making them. So it just gave me a bit more freedom, I suppose, to write the way I wanted to write and, and about what I wanted to write. So we found with the MNT, because it's based on this idea of people are, subscribing on patreon and giving us this money to spend we can then go to people and say look you've got free reign to say i want to write an article about hellboy or i want to write a comic about sexy manga i'll write a comic about not sexy manga which is rarer you know there's, there's more options that people can then go down these weird little paths and write what they want to write rather than write the things that they think will get traffic mm-hmm. because Christian and I, we're, we're currently the two editors uh, as, as Megan's now moved away, but um, we found we don't really check the traffic at all. In fact, I'm not quite sure how we check the traffic on the website, so I have no idea what the <laughs> like. but I don't really care because there are people subscribing and as long as they're happy, we're just going to keep doing whatever we want in the whatever way we want to do it. We've lost that broadsheet appeal, which is a shame, really. I would like to get the newsletter back in some form, if only either of us could actually do a design. But for the time being, having this website, it's just every week we're putting up really strange articles on anything. You know, Mm -hmm. any week it could be an in-depth interview with someone who's written um, some Korean webtoons, or it could be a piece about how Wolverine is now got hot claws and how that reflects on his character arc as a whole over, you know, 14 years. Uh, It it can kind of run in any sort of direction. Whatever people are interested in is what they can write about. And that's a little bit of democracy, I suppose, uh, in a a comics internet that has now moved towards movie news, video game news, TV news lists, and dank memes, as opposed Mm. to writing about the comics that inspired it all
0: yeah absolutely and John, do you have much yeah do you uh read comics news reviews, sites, things like that? Do you have any kind of opinion on you know how how the the landscape has changed really, or do you tend to stay away from all of that
1: well i <clears throat> I try to stay across it enough to understand how the industry is doing, but I'm not interested in news about Marvel titles and what's happening, and I'm not interested in news about crossover events. I'm not that interested in superheroes, which is still a vast section of the industry. Mm. So I'm I'm interested in like when publishers get taken over or part taken over or lose licenses because that's wonkish kind of detail that I'm interested in. But I'm not particularly interested in writing about comics mm. because I don't I think if you actually make comics in a way, it doesn't help to read criticism. I know it sounds it sounds short sighted, especially as I've done criticism in the past not of comics, but I I do not I don't find it useful or helpful. I I find it I can look at the headlines on CBR and and it, to me it just looks like a wall mm-hmm. of um you know kind of like the same comic covers at the comic shop that I think are quite off putting often when I go in there when you just you look at the wall of new releases and think well nothing for me here.
0: Mm-hmm. I think for for the most part as well with with sites like CBR and ComicBook.com and you know, it is it is the the path they've chosen to go down which is you know which is fine but that you're you know you're you're basically saying when you when you look at the the front page as as Steve said that is generally all the information you need as well really you know they'll they'll be you know they'll give you everything you need in the headlines and um and and that's it because they know that that's how people absorb that news now you know so almost it's it's almost. Uh, intentionally off putting in a way, you know, it's, it's intentionally pu- putting you in a place where you're not
1: necessarily. Oh, yeah, you don't, you don't have to read the articles, yeah. but also it, I always feel it looks quite reductive in a sense that it looks like an industry that hasn't really changed in 25 years. It, it sort of, here's the same things that were going on a long time ago in the same form they were going on with many of the same names involved. It doesn't really speak to progress when you look at those sites, mm. you know, which I don't think is true of comics at all. You know, comics are probably more interesting and varied.
2: In the English language, I think, yeah. I think that's been the shift as well over the over the last perhaps four years or so. That's been the shift with comics criticism. You still got those websites, and you'll probably always have those websites, but you've got the new websites coming up. Um, Multiversity kind of were a precursor for this, but you've got women write about comics, and you've got um, WMQ and other websites now, which are more concerned with talking about web comics, um, about talking about you know um, foreign language comics. About comics that aren't superheroes, about you know slice of life biography, that sort of thing, and it's building up a little bit more because I think people, I think quite you're quite right, you know, if there's this constant barrage of noise from superheroes, then people do start to get you know earache. You know, you want to you want something else alongside it. You want the medium to not just be represented by the loudest part of the industry. You want it to be everything gets an equal share of time and attention. And so I think other writers uh, on these websites have now found that they're not being catered for by CBR, Newsarama, those sort of websites. There's good stuff on them, but there is there's a certain um, frame of reference they have that not everyone wants to follow. So people are now creating their own websites, moving their own way, going on to YouTube to varying results, going on to podcasts to slightly better varying results. I think there is a there is a, a a movement out now and spreading out. And so you have got people paying attention to superheroes still, but other forms of comics are now starting to get more of their attention and more of their the, their fair share of the of the press reporting. It's it's a very slow movement and it's become as more and more typical superhero readers have kind of moved away from writing and, and, and talking about comics and as more women people of color have actually managed to force their way into that space um, and have you know brought their voice to it which has made things a lot more interesting a lot fresher and has made criticism a lot more engaging to read over the last Mm -hmm. four years maybe
0: yeah absolutely and it you know it, it reflects back in the comics as well you know when you see people uh you know you see more coverage of um, you know, of uh, minority creators and persons of colour and, and and female creators. And um, and you see a lot more of those creators uh, covered in, you know, comics criticism, comics journalism, then you'll, you know, conversely, you'll see a lot more of those comics being bought, being promoted, being pushed, being enjoyed. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's, it's one hand feeds the other and hopefully that will, you know, continue to evolve in the direction that it is evolving in. Because as you say, you know, there is, there is, potentially always going to be a need for sites like cbr and newsorama.com um but uh, but at the same time they don't have to be the only choice and when there's comics out there for everyone uh, more so than ever uh, then also needs to be comic criticism and comic journalism for everyone as well which is, uh, which is equally important. But, um, but going from uh, potentially things that we don't enjoy to things that we do enjoy, uh, I asked you both to uh, bring comics with you uh, that you uh, that are significant to you, that you enjoy, that you want to talk about with the show. Um, and um, John, we'll start with you. Um, what uh, what comic have you decided to bring with you uh, onto today's show?
1: I've brought the entire run, all five issues, of Tom Scioli's GoBots from IDW.
0: Mm. and that's that's really recent isn't it i think that's only just wrapped up in the last few months is that right
1: yeah i think yes i think so yes and yes in the last month or so the, the last issue came out i just i you know tom silly was someone i was aware of i was aware of godland and american barbarian although i, I didn't you know those weren't mega favorites of mine and i read transformers versus gi joe that was kind of where i got he sort of moved over into a new style that i just thought was interesting i thought what he was doing was interesting and I found him very interesting as a creator. He's, he's un- very, very unusual, and I have very jaded appetites. I think as many um, writer-artists do, you, you develop a very jaded appetite where a lot of things just look wrong to you or are, are tired. You, know, you can see exactly what's happening because you understand both sides of the equation. But you know, work that surprises you, you, you really cling to it, and that's how I feel about GoBots. I just loved it. I just thought it was the maddest most fun comic i'd read in a long time yeah
0: and uh, did you uh were you like did you come from it because of tom, come to it because of tom sheler or did you have like an affinity for gobots when you were a kid or did you have those toys when you were little or was
1: it was it i like uh, i did i liked them. i had they were the first sort of robot toys i had you know when during that initial wave i'm the correct age to have been a you know a small child when those came out but i'm not the sort of person who clings to like childish things uh, I don't, you know, spend time cultivating a big shelf full of Transformers at home. Mm. As a man in his 40s, I just think that some of the more interesting creators have actually gone onto these uh, licensed books, like James Roberts on um, Transformers: More Than Meets the Eye, and a lot of the people he worked with. They're just interesting people to talk to, and their their love of the of the material has never dimmed. Whereas I like it because they write it. I'm not necessarily interested in those characters if somebody else is working on them. Mm. But I think this is one of the purest expressions of comics that I've read in a really long time. It's just, it's got something that I don't think a lot of other books have really. It reminds me of like the first 12 issues of Alpha Flight by John Byrne, where he's kind of doing everything. Tom Seeley does everything on this book. He letters it, he writes it, he draws it. There's no other names on the cover. It's just him.
0: Mm and he, he's i mean you're right when you say he's he's obviously looked at what's out there and decided this is what i want to do and he's got his own distinct style he's go he's forging his own kind of path with you know with the, the style and the humor which it, you know it is there are they are really funny these issues as well you know there's a lot of humor in there um but they they capture that kind of feeling of nostalgia and feeling of you know reading an old an old comic from the 80s even though this is Entirely modern in its approach and entirely kind of um, revolutionary almost, you know, in the in the you know the style that he's producing. You know, you couldn't pick this up and think, oh yeah, this is a comic from the eighties. You know, you won't mistake it.
1: No, no. Well Tom's interesting because he's somebody who was very much a kind of Kirby acolyte in the early part of his career, and you know, you can see that he's doing everything like kirby the lines the shine on things the sort of i don't know if he ever does kirby crackle but i think he does actually in mm-hmm. godland he does. he does everything in a sort of kirby-esque way yeah but over the last two or three years he's he's kind of taken elements of that approach and he's changed his style he has these kind of muddy lines I mean, some of these pages are on a, I think a twenty-five panel grid. Yeah. Which obviously is wild, you know, like to do that. Which means the issues are so dense that I think every issue of this series is like the season of a television show. I think that's kind of how it's constructed. So the first one is very straight and fun, and by the time you get to the fifth issue, it's gone really high concept and strung out. But because there are so many panels in the issues and there's so much going on it doesn't feel super compressed. It feels like this is absolutely where it would have got to by issue five. But what he gets into these five issues could have been 50 or 100 issues. You could string it out. There's so much in between. Yeah. But he might, it's concise. You know, I think this is in a world where you, know, you can do a whole issue of a comic book, like a Marvel book, where it's just Black Widow landing on the wing of a plane. And that's the whole issue. You know, that's it. And then she punches someone. That's it. That's your lot. Here are comics where it's like ten times as much content, and comics are expensive, and I think there should be plenty of content in them
0: mm. is this um kind of indicative of the kind of comics you enjoy reading then the the you know the the artist and the the creator's got like a vision um and you know pushing it and forging forward with something that you've not seen before, like with an element of surprise to
1: it oh yeah, if I'm not surprised, what's the point of reading comics? you know I'm not going to make better comics by reading comics I, I i really think that for the most part you go and find the best of the past and you read the best of the present but most stuff if you've been doing it for 20 years it's not going to surprise you and you're not going to learn anything by reading 60 comics a month mm. 60 comic books a month because it's a busman's holiday you know i'm looking at comics all day while i'm working on them i don't want to read more comics in the evening unless they're really good so yeah i like things like head lopper yeah. andrew mcclain is a great favorite of mine I really like cartoonists as well. I love the French Cartoonist, um, Penelope Bajure. um, all sorts of really. Anything good. But, you know, I still go back to, like, Alex Toth and things like that and old, like, 50s newspaper strips. You know, I'm always just trying to kind of harvest the best of the best. You know, I spent a lot of time recently looking at Darwin Cook's work just because, you know, it, it gives so much and he's, you know, got such a mastery. I could spend a long time with that and David Matsicelli and people like that. I'm always trying to build up my repertoire of you know really really good people and try and work out what they do and um so yes it, the same goes right right across the ages really you know anybody who's trying to do something different and you know hitting hitting that mark i'll read it mm. definitely
0: and steve what uh, did you get a chance to read these issues what did you think
2: i did yes I i, to- I totally agree if i was you know, uh, an eight-year-old reading these comics, I would be poring over every page for hours and hours on end. It's a sort of comic where every page is, is is to a point and there's purpose in what he's doing, but he's not making it um, to force you into thinking something at any point in time. It's totally open-ended. The, the, the morality of it is kind of fascinating because he just leaves everything out there for you to then decide how you feel about what's going on um there's a there's a massive um like twenty panel fight scene towards the end, which then ends with a moral question and you wouldn't get that anywhere else. it would be you know here's the scene of the fighting, here's the scene of the talking um in in this comment every page he's trying to to suggest things to you, trying to put something out there to try and get a reaction to try and get you to to either relate to the characters or question the characters. He's, he's he's definitely seems that sort of person who when he's writing or, or you know putting out a comic together, he's got in mind that he wants you to be deeply invested in what's happening. And so as a result, you, you are deeply invested, I find. You know, I, I, I read this thinking I, I struggle with Transformers comics because I can't tell the robots apart half the time, um, which is on me. But here it's not on you, Steve. It's on I mean, those comics
1: are so complicated. And I you know, I came to them with knowledge when I sort of came back to the IDW once a few years ago. I and I really struggled every issue. I'd have to read every issue twice or read the previous issue before I read the next one when it arrived to make sure that I could remember who the characters were. Just because the visual language is the shape language is completely different to what you're used to, and if you're not completely ensconced in it, they're they're hard to
2: read. Mm. They are hard comics to read. Mm. I think it works because there's a slower pace to this, even though it's going a mile a minute at times. When you're reading it, you're not skipping the panels very quickly, I don't think. So, no, it it demands
1: your attention, doesn't it? You have to read it in print, I think. I didn't get it in comicsology, I got them in print. Mm. I think it really served by print. I mean, you may have read it on Comicsology. It's very likely because obviously it's not out in a trade yet. But I just thought in print, I just thought this is the perfect print book. It just works. You know, you can flip back a page and just have a quick look, you know, and, and it's all just laid out for you. Oh, no, it's great. It's great. It really made me excited about comics. And it's hard to make me excited about comics at this point. Um gotta say because i mean i'm in it all day you know Mm. i I can get more excited about you know particularly exciting you know buying a new hammer (laughs) you know know, i could get more excited about that than i would about a new issue of spider-man to be honest
0: well well, well, let's talk about this hammer for a minute is it is it a nice one is it uh tungsten
1: let's imagine that you just used to like a wooden grip but then you know like you've got it and you, then you've got one with like a rubber grip, kind of a bit more purchase. <laughs> a little you know, bit more you know, purchase. Can't yeah. You wait to go and whack something with this. Or oh, has it got like those claws on the other side so you can pull a nail out the wall? There's so many different options with hammers. You know, you, you really haven't lived until you've you spent some time with your hammer collection. And I, I reckon I may own seven hammers. Seven? They're all different. Oh, I think I own seven hammers. You know, there's a lot of different kinds. I mean, if you count a rubber mallet as a hammer, I think I own eight. Yeah. I think I, well, yeah, I do. Yeah, I think yeah, that's, that's
2: fair yeah
1: it's pretty looks like a hammer doesn't it
0: mm. Mm. i what, what i i um i mean i have opinions on hammers but i'll i'll, I'll bring us back to the topic on uh on, on GoBots. Mm-hmm. what i love about this and it to you mentioned it as well john about um is it john roberts on uh the latest uh, uh james roberts on uh, on transformers more than meets the eye what i loved about that series as well it, i agree, totally agree it was very difficult to read um, and i had I had the toys when I was a kid but I, I had little to no experience with them since then um and so you know picking up the issues were where I you know there were lots of new characters that all looked very similar um and even the names weren't kind of intuitive to you know to who they were as a, as a character kind of thing um but what I'd loved about that series and what I loved about gobots is that you you could have it on a shelf and a stranger would walk past and go transformers or go bots that's that those those toys from a kid and then you you pick it up and you read it and there's it's so much there's so much depth to it that what i love about the these go bots issues especially is there's there's there is a an embracing of the ridiculous about it but there is also a sincerity to uh the approach um that i think that tom sholey has has absolutely captured and i think he does capture generally like even like american barbarian which was you know which was inherently ridiculous inherently kind of Kirby over the top there is this um aspect to his work where he he takes the joke seriously you know and he does he does um evolve it to the point where you are you are having genuine feelings like this there was some actual heartbreaking moments in like in the final issue especially um with this series and how he how he resolves the the certain character developments that have, you know, kind of crept up on you as the issues have progressed, you know, till the point where it's no longer a book about giant stompy robots that fight each other.
1: If that's right. No. And, and it's funny. The other thing that I thought was really interesting was, I mean, the last issue, I wouldn't want to spoil it for everybody, like his big twist, which mm. is ludicrous. <laughs> I bet he was laughing at his desk when he thought this. I bet he was clapping over his head because if I had thought of that, I would have been so delighted with myself, and I would have called the other. Like, yeah, can it be like this? And they'd be like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> and then, then I just high fiving myself. Yeah, but you know, he but he does. He integrates everything. He looks at like the GoBots movie. He you know he he attends to that kind of side of it, which was remember lest we forget about rocks.
0: Mm, yes, Go-Bots yeah.
1: Uh, rock and then he but he he attends like the cartoon series there's a point when when scooter who was sort of he was like the cute character in the go bots cartoon in the first issues he's just drawn like the toy by the end of the series he's sort of been lobotomized and he behaves and looks like scooter in the cartoon series which is such an odd sort of meta joke yeah also is quite tragic the way it's presented as if oh this noble character and look at him now with his big mad cartoon face and what they've done to him talking like a child Mm. i just thought it was great there's so many ideas in there like can you pack more ideas into a comic i don't think you can i think you know i think he's a master i think he's great It, it gives me it just gave me such joy every time i got an issue yeah
0: did either of you read um, Transformers versus G.R. Joe the movie, the one shot? Uh, yes, did. yes,
1: <laughs> I did. I read the series, and then I read his consolidated, his consolidated. What was it, forty-page comic? Yeah. that pressed the entire series in a completely new form. What a mad exercise! It's just the fact that they let him do it. They said, "Tom, away you go." Unbelievable! Yeah, anyway. I've got. I've had. The, he was like Columbo. I had this idea. <laughs> I just, more thing i want to do a 40 page consolidated version of this mini series yeah and they're like yeah all right i suppose it's just paper isn't it it's only trees you might as well
0: <laughs> yeah it's, it's just unbelievable just this idea of a comic book adaptation of a movie adaptation of his comic and the you know the meta commentary that he made about you know, he he paid homage to not only to movie adaptations but to comic adaptations of movie adaptations, yes, and just brutal. there was layers upon layers of it, and it's and it was it was perfectly executed as well. But the the actual, you know, the there's there. I always say with some comics, there's a moment where I'm sat reading them, and then I just kind of pause and sit back in my chair a little bit and just kind of sit and ponder. And I think that definitely had that moment for me where, you know, you you sit you sit back and you're like I don't even know how he would go about creating it i don't even know how you know some some comics are very a to b to c whereas this was just kind of how do you even begin to sit down and write something like
1: that um i'm very fond of like the one line i love making like fake bullpen bulletins pages i've done them in a few comics the last one i did was in an issue of by night where i just write long lists of fake comics and what happens in each issue of them <laughs> yeah. And they're always in the middle of a run as well That it'll be like issue 70 or something called Synth. <laughs> like, and then I try to work out what would happen in seventy of sin, mm. but he doesn't. He wouldn't just stop at the bullpen bulletins page. He would go and actually make those comics. Well, I might make two panels, and then my need is sated. Mm. But I get the feeling that Tommey isn't finished until he's actually seen that concept through. No matter how, I think it nags at him, and I think he has to do it because these aren't easy comics to make. This is, looks like a really tough style to work in you know he works on like gridded paper his pencils are super detailed when you see them and you know like that that movie adaptation that he didn't have to make i mean in fairness no one was probably crying out for that comic to exist must have taken him two or three months to do Mm, yeah two or three months of sitting at his desk but he felt he had to do it and i think i mean that's that's a hell of a mindset Mm -hmm. he's but he's quite the he's quite the figure for me. He's quite an inspiration.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, and Steve, you um, have bought your own comics with you as well. What um, what comics have you decided to bring with you to the show?
2: I've chosen the um, the first four issues, so the first mini series of Damage Control, um, the uh, the original Marvel run, uh, written by Dwayne McDuffie and uh, drawn by Ernie Cohen. Um I thought I'd pick this one because. Uh, as you say, there's something so madly specific about um, a, a comic like the GoBots and and Tom Scully's way of making things. And I want to try and pick something that had a bit of that same sort of specificity, where someone's clearly got really over invested in a very small idea and <laughs> built it up into something uh, which really shouldn't have been more than a one shot, and somehow managed <laughs> <continue. laughs> I mean, it's very quickly in this mini-series. The idea of damage control is um, they're basically a a state-funded team of people who go out, and when superheroes have their big fights, these people have to then go and sort out the property damage, make sure the buildings are put back in place and uh, Empire State Building is put back the right way around and the streets are all working so people can go to work tomorrow. But Mm -hmm. after one issue, they... Almost immediately, give up on half that premise, and um, the second issue is just them trying to sort out Doctor Doom's liabilities to make sure he's <laughs> paying up for his debts.
1: <laughs> I love that
2: issue, yeah. And and, and you know, um, by the time it's the fourth issue, they're all the the, the team are all wearing um, they've all been wearing superhero suits for half for half an issue. They're stuck inside the danger room, trying to sort out a malfunction while. A uh, robotic groucho marks, uh, throws bombs at them. Um, it is so strange. And it's the sort of thing you can't really believe Marvel published this sort of thing. But I think yeah. they had a very strange mindset in that, that point in time in history. So they were just going for it. And so someone like Dwayne McDuffie, who's got... Uh, he, he can throw a really strange idea onto the page... But the thing about him is, when he writes, he writes with such gravity and authority that it almost feels like something that should exist. So you read these comics and you think, yes, it makes perfect sense that there should be a team of people who go out with their hats, and when a giant robot is destroyed, they, you know, cut up the body and distribute it across to the ship ship merchants. So they can, you know, build new ships. That makes complete sense at the time. Then you step away from reading the comic and you think, what? what what is happening here? This is bonkers. I was reading a comic about Spider-Man getting trapped inside a robot he's defeated for about half a day and just sitting <laughs> in a web hammock reading comics <laughs> while he waits for someone to get him out. Yeah. I well,
0: I I absolutely love about damage control and, and this is the first time I've I've properly sat down and read Read the original ones because I've read I've read some of the follow ups and a few issues here and there and, and the you know the concept is is something that's been been banded around a few times before, but what I what I absolutely love is that it's clearly the answer to a question some Marvel creators had like while they were drunk one evening they were just like who cleans all this shit up and then that was literally this is the answer to that question and there's something so so pure about that concept, um, but there's something so you know you can unpack a lot of humor and a lot of um, a lot of storylines could just come from, you know, from that simple concept. Um, and you know, Dwayne McDuffie, to his credit, he he develops that a little bit, but then he just decides, as you say, to just go off book and just do his own thing. And it's just, it's it's incredible how it actually makes how it makes it through those four issues and where it takes you. It's
1: fascinating. It's a weird comic, though. I mean, I I read them all in one sitting this morning, and I felt like I was going mad. Like I knew, like, <laughs> <laughs> and I read them. I was like, "What is going on here?" And I had so many questions. A lot of the questions were kind of editorial questions more than anything else, because I found it's a very odd book. Like I, um, it, like it, it was. Like, it ended up in sort of like more capable hands later, but it's they've got like it's Ernie Cole, who I think at that time would have been like doing like not brand eck and things like that um you know like marvel yeah, humor yeah. Comics, what the and things like that mm. so it's not particularly well drawn although he is quite like he was an artist of some i think he's still alive artist of some standing kind of in the 60s i think you know in, but he sort of got like a marvel house inker on him bob wirecheck who looks like he's inked it in an afternoon it's mm. so rough like one of the issues is slightly better looking than the other ones, but some of them are really, really like he's done it with a hot pen. He's just gone at it really, really fast. I'm re- I'm sorry to to knock Bob Wirecheck. He's done some incredible work over the years, but this isn't Bob at his brilliant best. Unfortunately, this isn't the Bob Wirecheck of kind of the Paul Smith X-Men comics and Alpha Flight and stuff. He's he's really just going to town on poor old Ernie here, and yeah. uh, you know there's a. Yeah, I was looking at I was like, this is, these are rough looking comics. And it's been coloured super quickly as well. You know, like, there's like some very odd colouring choices. But I
0: can't imagine it was, I can't imagine it was like a, a high priority ooh, for the publisher. at the time. It's,
1: it's Stan, back, or well, who would it have been at the time? It would have been Tom DeFalco. Tom DeFalco, Tom mm-hmm. DeFalco will have sat back and yeah. he got a big stogie and the other guy. Guys, if you can do it in an afternoon, you will put it out. We'll put it out. Don't worry about it. We'll get Bob, get his hot pen on it. Colour in 15 minutes. We'll get it out. Sal, put it out. Something like that. Anyway, I imagine that's what the bullpen was like at all times. There's also there's a sort of that Mark Grunewald was really excited about. It's got its own little Marvel Universe pages in the back for the characters. Hmm. And Mark Greenwald did all that. You know, he was like the oracle of... Um, of marvel wasn't he He had you know he held it all in his head essentially mm-hmm. and i think it's the sort of thing that kind of the kind of universe whole that mark grunewald would have been really excited about seeing filled he'd be like yes damage control that really makes the marvel universe work and i think he probably i i could see his his fingerprints all over it. it, and that made me like it more because I really liked Mark Gruenwald. He was his heart was definitely in the right place, and he was Marvel through and through. But yeah, it's definitely a kind of this makes the universe work, and we can put out as many comics as we want because X Men sells, you know, five hundred thousand a month. Mm,
0: yeah. So what um, what was it about Damage Control that appealed to you, Steve? When when you decided to to bring it on? I mean, I know you were talking about the idea of it being, um, you know, this kind of. Uh, Tangentially similar concept, really, to to GoBots in that kind of in uh, in a, in a loose sense. Um, but did you read this when you were younger? Is it something you picked up at the time, or is it something you've picked up in the years since?
2: No, I only read it about a year ago. I think it was. I had no idea this existed. Uh, that there was even these sort of stories that were being made by Marvel uh, at that sort of time. I thought they were very much invested in the superheroes have to, you know, be serious and important and you can't do anything to undermine them. Mm. And then to see someone just outright saying, you know, Wolverine's a bit stupid, isn't he? That's a bit of a stupid idea. Who thought that up? Yeah. You know, do we need to have more Wolverine? Well, let's probably, him in. let's just make fun of him for half an issue because, you know, he deserves it. It's it's kind of amazing to see Dwayne McDuffie. I mean, his scripts, he maybe hits about 60% of his jokes, there's a lot of things that just don't quite work or, or fall to the floor and just a bit of a mess and some really strange dead ends he goes down. But it's it's kind of impressive in a way that he was allowed to go down these these sort of paths and try these things that he's trying. And I quite like the fact that, you know, the, the connection I was trying to make, I suppose, was with GoBots, you kind of think this is a, a you know, at some level, it's a license that people prize it's, it's this um, property that, you know, they've, they've made toys out of it, they've made series out of it. It's surprising that they would let someone like Tom Scioli do what he wants with it. Mm. And I think it's also kind of a surprising that they would let someone like Dwayne McDuffie just make fun of the Marvel Universe for four issues. So I don't think he's been... I don't think at this time he's been doing any sort of important, you know, quotes, comics for Marvel. No, I, mean, I this think is... this is his first
0: major work for them, I think, yeah.
2: Yeah, so this is how he starts. He starts off by taking the piss out of them for four issues. <laughs> yeah. Um, which then goes on. Was like... People that Marvel.
1: like Dan Slott started work on um, maybe like Spider-Ham or Ren and Stimpy. I mean, you wouldn't mm-hmm. think about Dan, Dan Slott that way now, but the humour books were often the way in because there were a lot of shorts done for what That and things like yeah. that. So that was often a right into Marvel. For new creators, they would put you on a humor book, mm. and then people would kind of toil away in humor or licensed or kids comics like the Starline and things like that. And then mm. they would kind of they would worm their way through editors' good graces and eventually get onto a, you know, a grown-up book. Yeah. Well,
0: Dan specifically, he, you know, he, there was a lot of meta humor in She-Hulk when he and he did that, and that was and that was one of his first books, wasn't it, or first major kind of titles that he did for Marvel? Yeah.
2: Hmm. It's nice to see comics being put out that were really just in-jokes that the, the guys in the staff room loved and somehow morphed into actual physically published work. So something like Damage Control is something where everyone sat around in the bullpen having a, having a great time laughing about it. Mm-hmm. And then somehow it, it manages to come out as, I think, four miniseries in total they made, mm-hmm. with um, Clay McDuffie writing all of them. And then it started doing tie-ins, so in recent years, Damage Control keeps coming back and they do tie-ins where it's like, here's Damage Control sorting out World War Hulk. Or what did Damage Control think of the Marvel Civil War or the Second Civil War? Or the yeah. the they have a Third Civil War?
0: Uh, Only two at the moment. There's probably okay. going to be a third is one. The, is one happening? Uh, no, I don't think so, but I can't imagine it'd be too long.
2: Yeah, yeah, they are like fighting each other, don't they? Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's quite nice to just see something which... Really, readers shouldn't really be picking up and reading. Uh, it's just something that made Tom DeFalco laugh when he was in the staff room, and so suddenly you've got these comics coming out. But you know, there is something really charming, in a sense, about them. I mean, they're kind of half assed but Dwayne McDuffie, at least, is trying to make characters uh, make sense within the comic that he's created here. Like He's he's clearly he's, he's putting little touches in with the comic. Like One thing he's done which no one else was doing at the time, is he's putting in people of different ethnicities. So he's not just saying, here is, here is the black character on the team. He's specifically saying there are two or three or four black people in this comic, and they've all actually got different ethnicities or backgrounds. They've all got different... I mean, it's, it's, the colouring's not good, but they've got different skin tones...
1: Yes, I noticed that. It's really interesting. Mm. And you especially notice the comicology with the colours cleaned up from, you know, because the colours are strange when they put, when they digitise the old Marvel comics because they're almost too bright. Mm, yeah, without too flat. flat yeah. yeah. But yeah, but you see even between, you know, like there's variation in the skin tones between people of colour, which again is unusual for the period because there was pretty much one colour for people from one part of the world, you know, and that was it. But no, there's, they really
2: tried on that. I really noticed that. It was un, it felt unusual. Mm. It's trying to make a proper, I suppose before, you know, people try to make authentic comics, it's trying to make something that feels more like the New York that Dwayne McDuffie presumably was walking around in. Yeah,
1: yeah of course, because, yeah, they should, they saw this on the street every day. It's nice to see a comic that actually reflects mm. that.
0: And that there is that kind of inherent through line with damage control, which i quite which appeals to me um, and it 's had kind of varying success in superhero comics, but the idea of like the ground up approach you know of just kind of having regular people reacting to the the ridiculous uh, you know absurd superheroes that activists going on around them, so you know you go from. There, there's something like this, and then there's there's things like Civil War Frontline, which I don't know if any of you read, but that was kind of a good idea but awful execution. Like the idea of what do journal, how do journalists report on these huge superhero events, oh. which you know has a has a nugget of interest in it to me. I like that idea of you know well how. How are how are the X Men perceived in, in in the media and things like that? I find that kind of concept fascinating, but the execution of it was was not great, you know. But then there's books like uh, like Marvels, which was um, you know Kurt Busiek, Alex Ross, and then you had uh, obviously Astro City, which kind of is the is the is the pinnacle of that idea, really. You know, it's that concept made real, which is you know real people in in a real life situation, but also they look up and they see superheroes. Um, there's-
1: so hard, though, aren't they? Because it's always they're always about real people, i.e., characters you've never seen before and you don't really care about. It's it's so hard to humanise, and that's why Astro City works because it's so well developed, and Marvel's works because it's so beautiful. But it's really hard just for a, a sort of flat issue of a kind of crossover or a tie-in mm. to uh, you know to deliver that because you don't you don't know these people, and in nineteen or twenty pages, you're not going to get to know them really.
0: No, yeah, and that's why I think I quite liked damage controls approach in the sense that rather than going, well, what are real people doing about this? You know, it didn't take the question too seriously because I think the question of, you know, who pays for and cleans up the damage that superheroes create is a question kind of like, why doesn't anyone recognize Superman with his glasses on? Or, you know, why does why doesn't Batman kill more people than he does? It's like a question that you know as a superhero fan not to ask. And you just kind of you have to accept that ridiculousness, you know, that base level of, of ridiculous, you know, it's it always makes me laugh when people go, oh, God, you know, they're not very – they're a bit too uh, – th- this isn't very believable. You know, S- Spider-Man wouldn't, wouldn't be able to lift that much. That's not believable. And it's like you, your whole world is built on this foundation that Superman puts glasses on and no one recognises him. You know, that, that inherent level of ridiculous is based into superheroes. And so I quite like that Damage Control has, you know, has the ability to ask a – you know, I like have a serious answer to a ridiculous question, but instead it kind of tries to embrace that ridiculous element to it, which, which I kind of loved and I think worked in its favour for me. Definitely, as you say, Steve, with that kind of charm. But
2: one it thing has- that sold me about um, the first issue of GoBots as well is it, it's similar because no one's questioning the fact that there are giant robots walking around and talking to them. So there's a point where um, um, one of the characters is um, on the scooter, as you say, which is a GoBot. And she goes up to the front of her school and she's like, all right, I'm going to go to class now. So off you go, you know, go do some taxing or something, get some extra money for us. And the teacher comes out and says, oh, are you going to bring your friend into lecture hall? And she's like, oh, great. And then she and her go-bot go walk into lecture hall and just sit down and attend a lecture at, at, at university. And no one's questioning it or anything yeah. like that. It's just completely, you know, taken completely seriously. And I love that, that level of just embrace it. You know, the this yeah. is this is just what we're going to do with this comic, and um, you know, just upfront, just sit down, enjoy it, because this is this is where we're going to go, and it's going to get stranger from here.
0: Yeah, you you have to subconsciously accept a certain level of absurd in order to you know to kind of buy into the rest of it, um, and I think that's that's true of both of these both of these uh, miniseries. Really, I think um, what I what i love about gobots do you and a question really like one of the things that appeals to me the most really is about the idea of um you know kind of feeding a certain level of nostalgia you know it does it does take he 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 wears his inspirations on his sleeve, clearly, but he's, he's a lot like, um, you know, Michelle Fife or, um, or Ed Pisker, really, with his kind of style on Hip Hop Family Tree, is this idea of embracing that kind of nostalgic feel but not recreating it, but it's just kind of giving you that, that feeling of it. Is that something, do you think, that appeals to our generation but would potentially diminish as future generations go? Or do you think that it's, it's kind of strong enough artistically to, to hold its own?
1: Uh, I think it's artistically strong. I think they're basically appealing to like, the primal force of comics when you're young, which is something that, as comics audiences have aged, and the audiences, especially for Big Two books, have kind of demanded ever greater realism. Um, and, you know, y- you know exactly what I'm talking about, I assume. You know, the, the, the way they sort of embrace this sort of visual sophistication that dilutes what makes a comic enjoyable. Mm-hmm. yeah. For me, anyway, you know, I find those books hard to look at often because, you know, there's a few people who are brilliant at that. So Chris Samney, say, is an incredibly sophisticated artist who brings all sorts to a page. But not everybody's Chris Samney, but there are a lot of people trying to be that kind of artist or a sort of Brian Hitch style artist, and they can't do it. Whereas if you go back to comics of the year of damage control, they were cheap, even though people were probably being paid the same as they are now, such is the nature of the industry. They were cheaply produced. They were knocked out quick. You had a pencil and an inker, so you have the same artist on every issue, just about. You know, there was art teams could be retained because the person was only having to do probably a quarter as much drawing, really, hmm. as opposed to what they do now. And these sort of creator-driven books with this nostalgic feel, you get consistency of artists across issues. You get um, an approach that basically <clears throat> uses the artistic approach of the Pre image and then 2000s Marvel Max, etc., you know, comics Mm, create something that actually reads as satisfyingly as the comics you read when you were young. But then, if you read comics outside the um, excuse me, I'll stop this uh, digression in a second. I'm sure I'll eventually reach the the point I was (laughs) going to. If you look at at manga or if you look at anywhere outside of the kind of um, floppy market, the direct market. Comics are satisfying in that way. A Reina Tel- Telgemeier book is satisfying. A Vera Broskell book is satisfying. They're satisfying comics and they work in exactly the same way as the Ed Pisco comics work. Mm-hmm. You get lots of panels, you get lots of engagement with the characters. Every panel does a job. There's no, there's no splash. There's no attempt to recreate the way a movie or a film works rather than using comics for what they're for, to tell good stories in an engaging way. And I think... We should ask that of all our comics.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree. I think it's. I think it's important that, um, especially as you say, like you know, when we're in an environment with comics where there is so much more diversity, there's so much more freedom and um, opportunity for creators to to find an avenue to find their work. You know, when in the you know 90s and so, you know it was only with the creation of image that you know a, a, another a second path uh, appeared but now there's there's dozens of ways to get your work out there you know and different forms that they can take um i think it's more important than ever really to uh give creators the confidence to tell the stories they want to tell in the way they want to tell them and i think that as uh, as we mentioned earlier you know the idea of GoBots even existing the idea of transformers versus gi joe the movie even existed um and the idea to a lesser extent but but still valid you know of dwayne McDuffie um in in the, eight, in the late 80s being able to take this toy box and kind of shake it up a bit and just you know produce a humorous take on something or, or you know poke poke the giant industry bear a little bit i think it's so important for those kind of stories to to exist and continue to exist and i think we're we're in a place now you know where we're moving in such a A radical direction when it comes to that, where it's just, it's exploding really in different directions. Um, And I think it's great that we can get a book like GoBots out on the stands and people will appreciate it and it will resonate with people, despite how, you know, how different it, it is to anything else that's come before. But uh, I think that is uh, that is the time uh, we've all got now, really. So uh, I thank you very much both for joining me. I've really enjoyed talking about GoBots, and I've really enjoyed talking about uh, damage control as well. Um, before we head off, uh, where can people find you
2: and your work on the internet? Um, should we start with you, Steve? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I'm on Twitter. Uh, I am Steve W. Morris, uh, I also... Um, edit uh shelf dust which is a very silly website really which is all about single issues of comics that's at shelfdust.com and then uh the more serious but still somewhat silly uh proper website you could say is the mnt which is at comicsmnt.com. and you can support through patreon which gets you exclusive essays and other pieces that don't go on the website which is patreon.com slash comics brilliant and you john
1: uh you can find me on Twitter, I'm at Bad Machinery. Um, My, I'm not really doing web comics now, I'm taking a bit of a break while I work on some other projects, some print projects but uh, you can still read like thousands and thousands of pages of comics that I did at scarygoround.com there's a, a long and and a glittering history that you can really dig into if you're interested, or just read one or two and decide it's not for you, that's fine with me I don't know <laughs>
0: Um, well, thank you both for joining me. I really, uh, really enjoyed uh, enjoyed chatting to you both. That's the issue is part of the Multiversity Comics podcast network. You can find this show and plenty more at multiversitycomics.com. You can subscribe to the show via Apple, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please consider sharing this episode with a friend. The show is on Twitter at That's the Issue, and I'm on there too at Mattaloon. Finally, you can contact the show via email at that's issue podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.